0: Well, hey, everybody. Uh, Before we jump into today's final episode of this uh, fascinating uh, series that I've been so excited about, um, I wanna tell you what's coming up. Next Sunday, we begin a, next weekend, we begin a brand new uh, message series called Helping the Next Gen Win or Helping the Next Generation Win, Helping the Next Gen Win. Because whether you're a senior in high school or you're a senior adult and everybody in between, all of us have a generation that's coming along behind us. And many of us um, are so grateful for the generation that was ahead of us, that invested in us. And our whole church model is built around Helping the next generation win. So we thought we would talk about it for the next few weeks. So we start that next week and there's something for all of us. And what we're going to discover together is that when you help the next gen win, you win as well. Uh, we're going to have three special guests during this five-part series. And one of them is Dave Ramsey. On October the 9th, Dave's going to be here. So if you have friends who are Dave Ramsey fans but may not be church fans, this might be a good opportunity to invite them to your local church because Dave will be with us talking about how to help the next generation win. No surprise here financially. So it's going to be a lot of fun for these next five weeks. So that begins next Sunday. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Now today uh, we do wrap up this series, Who Needs God? And if you are, this is the first time you've joined us online or on television, the first time you've joined us at one of our churches around the country, um, you are literally coming in on the end of a conversation. And if you've ever come in on the end of a conversation, you find yourself saying, wait, 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 what what are we talking about? So if you go to whoneedsgod.com, 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 all of these messages will be up there, including today's installment we would really really appreciate it if you're interested if you'd want to catch up with the conversation, because it will certainly make today a lot more make a lot more sense. In fact, our message series are really like one sermon spread out over three, four, six weeks, and so um, you know we start light and we end heavy. And today, I'm super excited about what we're going to talk about as we um, land the plane. Now, um, the other thing I got to say too is I'm so grateful for our church because um, I have gotten more criticism for this series than any series I've ever done, and all the criticism has been from church people, but not you, church people, other church people, and I understand why. Because if you drop in, and, you know, it's like dropping into a conversation. So I love, love, love our church. I love that you've allowed me to have some flexibility that I know I've made some of you uncomfortable and I, I, it just makes me so, so, so love our church. So I'm super excited about that. Now, um, for, for some people, they have felt like this series, that my agenda was to convert atheists and so that has, that's not the case. In fact, my agenda in this series really hasn't been to convert anyone, okay? So if you felt like I've been trying to convert you, I, you I, I, that's probably my fault, but it hasn't been to convert you. I just want all of those of you who grew up in church and who left the church to come back. That's, that's what this whole thing is about. Um, I didn't coin this term, and I've learned through the series, that some of you are offended by it, and I apologize for that. It's not my word. But some time ago, a research group coined the term none to describe the people who... Um, have stepped away from faith. They're basically the non-affiliated or the unaffiliated. So if you grew up in church, specifically Christian church, I just want you to reconsider faith. In fact, I want you, and if you've missed any of this, you gotta go back, because I gotta move fast, but I want you to come back to the faith of your childhood, but not your childhood faith. I want you to reconsider and to step back toward the faith of your childhood, but not your childhood faith. Essentially, I'm inviting you, or this whole series is an invitation to begin your adult journey of faith, or to continue your adult journey of faith, or I could say to re engage with faith. There's a dozen ways to say this. But if you put faith on the back burner because of really good reasons, a bad church experience, something you learned in college that you couldn't reconcile with Sunday school, whatever the reason might be, we just, I just want you to come back and at least begin again or start asking the questions that perhaps perhaps. perhaps an adult would ask as it relates to faith. And as we've said, bring your science. I mean, bring your science. I mean, if there's a God, um, we have God's word, but we also have God's world. And God's world is a revelation of what God is like. So bring your science, even your cosmology, bring your skepticism, bring your skepticism about the Bible, your skepticism about Old Testament miracles, you know, bring all of that with you. Now, if you say, well, Andy, you know, I'm, I'm open and I'm curious, but I don't like organized religion. Let me just tell you something, I'm a professional. Disorganized religion is way worse, okay? So I, I, I realize that organized religion kind of freaks you out, maybe big church, but I'm telling you what, at least at our church, just speaking for our churches, we've worked really, really, really hard to make this a place where people with all kinds of questions and all kinds of points of view can get together and explore together because none of us have all the answers. And here's the thing, and you, may, you think I'm just making this up. The church needs you. We need you. We need you back. We need you because you'll keep us honest. And I know what you would say when if I were talking to you across coffee and say, well, Andy, the reason I left is I asked some honest questions and everybody thought I was a heretic and they laid hands on me and started praying for me and trying to cast out demons. And I was just asking a question about a six day creation. Next thing I know I'm demon possessed and they cast me out because they couldn't get the demons out. So I understand that, okay? <clears throat> but I'm telling you, the church needs you. The church needs you back because you've got questions that we should wrestle with as well. So I'm inviting you back. And besides, think about it this way. If, just think, if there were more of you, if there were more people like you here, you would like it here. Because when you show up, you think, oh, they're all convinced and they're all literalist and they're all whatever. But if there are more people like you who are curious and asking the good questions about faith, you would like it here because you would run into people and in our churches. We've created these circles and these conversations where we can explore these things together without being judgmental, without being critical. And then one last thing before I get to the actual message. Um, and this, is kind of, this might be a little harsh. So I'm taking off my preacher hat and just putting on my I'm older than you hat for just a second, okay, for many of you. Dads, for those of you who are dads. For the men who are listening or watching or in one of our churches and you're, you've got kids and you're skeptical and you've just you've backed out of the whole religious church faith thing and because you backed out, you took your wife and your kids or you took your kids with you. Can, can I just encourage you to rethink that? I, if, again, if we met sitting across the table and I'm not the preacher and I'm not up here with a microphone, I, I would say to you because I'm a little further ahead perhaps than, than, than some of you when it comes to family and kids, I would say, please, please don't let your adult skepticism rob your children of a foundation that will serve them for life. And I get this. You don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want my kids learning something I don't believe. I get that. But would you at least consider, would you at least consider not allowing your adult skepticism because of, for whatever reason, to rob your children of a foundation that if you're real honest, in most cases, you would say, you know what? I don't believe everything I learned in Sunday school. I don't believe everything I learned in church, but It did lay a foundation for me that I, again, I can't even describe it, but there was just, there was something good in the foundation the church laid for me. Don't rob your kids of that as you wrestle with questions that you may never have answers to. So essentially, we just want everybody to take a step because everybody can take a step. Read something, listen to something, watch something. Um, we have this fabulous environment in all of our churches called Starting Point where we just a- ask and answer questions and do our best to answer questions. And when we don't have an answer, we say, we don't know, You know, we don't know. But at least you know, do something. And at our churches, and I can't speak for all churches. In fact, this is one of those things that makes people outside of our churches kind of look at us funny. But at our churches, and I, and I mean, and we've been doing this for years. This isn't something new. At our churches, you can belong before you believe. And by when I say belong, I mean you can come and get involved, and you can get in circles. And in fact, you can even serve in some capacity before you believe everything we believe. We we just think the circle is really big, and the reason we we are this way, and the reason we've embraced this idea, is because when Jesus was on the planet, he invited people to follow him who did not believe. In fact, his followers were worse than any of us. They believed, then they didn't believe, then they didn't know what to believe, and then they believed, and then they changed the world. So if you have ever believed, stop believing, and you're reconsidering it, you're in. You, you, fit the, you fit the description or the criteria for somebody who followed Jesus in the first century. So as his body, we dare not say, you can't belong until you believe. If Jesus had started that way, no one would have followed him because it takes time and we have questions and there are things that we have to explore. And curiosity is a powerful, powerful thing that I think, in my opinion, that God gave us the ability to engage in. So we wanna invite you to step back into the pool to begin following Jesus, not following the church, following Jesus, understanding that you may not understand everything, none of us will, but please, 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 please don't discard what's undeniable for something that currently is unexplainable. And please don't throw out everything because something threw you off when you were younger. We want to invite you back in. And then there's one last thing. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time together as we land the plane and wrap up this series. So as we wrap up this whole conversation about who needs God, I wanna ask those of you who have stepped away from faith, maybe you've not stepped into atheism, maybe you have, but you just kind of stepped away from the whole thing. I wanna ask you to do something that's very, very difficult. And when I say difficult, I don't mean mean it's difficult for you as opposed to other people. It's difficult for all of us. But because you're the target audience, I, I wanna ask you if you would be honest with yourself. And this is hard. And I know it's hard because it's hard for me. Just my experience, whenever I look in the mirror and I'm super honest with myself, I always end up with a homework assignment. When I'm honest with myself, I have to walk away and generally there's someone I have to apologize to. When I'm absolutely honest with myself, there's something I have to admit that I don't wanna admit. There's something I have to own up to that I don't wanna own own up to. When I'm really honest with myself, oftentimes I have to humble myself and humility does not come natural to do any of us possibly. But here's something we've all learned as adults. And it's simply this, that self-deception, when we, you, know, it's, you deceive other people, it's one thing, but self-deception always takes us in a bad direction. If you are not honest with yourself, you cannot get to where you need to be. If you are not honest with yourself, you are stuck. If you're not honest with yourself, it's a lid to growth. And here's, here's how we all know this. I mean, think about how different your growing up family, your growing up life would have been if your dad had been honest with himself or your mom had been honest with herself but instead they played games and they hid and they made excuses and they wouldn't take responsibility. For some of you, your family growing up experience would be completely different if somebody could have ha- would have had the ability, somebody would have encouraged them to just come on, face up to what you know is true. In fact, some of you who were divorced, you, you'd still be married. If either you or your spouse had had the courage to look in the mirror and say, I'm the one with the problem. This really is my issue. I'm the one to blame. I need to quit making excuses and take responsibility for my life. So for the next few minutes, I just wanna challenge those of you who have stepped away from faith to do what all of us have to do at some point in some arena of life. And that is, that it's difficult to be extremely honest with yourself. that may come across insulting. I don't mean for it to be. So just track with me and maybe this will make sense as we go along. So what in the world does that have to do with anything? Okay, Andy, you want me to be honest with myself? What does it have to do with the fact that I have stepped away from faith? Three quotes and a question. Three quotes and a question. One of the books I read in preparation for this series was a book um, called Mind and Cosmos, Mind and Cosmos by Thomas Nagel. Thomas Nagel is a professor at New York University. He teaches philosophy and law. Um, This is a pretty safe title, Mind and Cosmos, but the subtitle is just, just created havoc in the scientific community. Here's the, let me read you the subtitle. Why the materialist, neo-Darwinian concept, conception of nature is almost certainly false. This is the subtitle. I mean, this sounds like a thesis statement. Why the materialist, neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. And in this book, um, he's an atheist. Thomas is an atheist. But in this book, he argues, and these are my words, not his, that essentially in the atheist community, um, and, in, and for the most part in the scientific community, the scientists have done the same thing they accuse religious people of doing. They accuse religious people of having a God of the gaps. Anytime we can't explain something, we say, God did it, God did it, God did it. He says essentially, the scientific community is doing the same thing. We have gaps and we say natural selection did it, natural selection did it, natural selection did it. And in this book he says natural selection does not explain and natural selection cannot explain some undeniable phenomenon. And in the book he talks specifically about the issue of value. And talks about how in the world could natural selection give us value and other things. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. But the reason I bring Thomas Nagel up isn't because of this book, even though it's a fascinating book. It's because of a book that he, re- he wrote earlier, where he as an atheist, makes an extraordinary confession. I mean, and his, his honesty, his honesty is, is really astonishing. But I think for maybe some of you watching or listening today, his honesty is liberating. And it may reflect something you've never been willing to admit to yourself, because I want you to just be honest with yourself. And his honesty, I think perhaps may give some of us permission to be honest with ourselves at a level we've never explored or been willing to admit before. Here's what he wrote. He says this in his book, The Last Word. I want atheism to be true. I, just, I haven't just come to the conclusion based on the data. It's bigger and bolder than that. I want atheism to be true and, made, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It bothers me that there are thinking people who are believers because I want atheism to be true. This is an extraordinary admission. He goes on, he says this. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, that's extraordinary. And for some of you, you may have never given yourself permission to acknowledge this because you're smart enough to know that if you acknowledge this, you have just cracked open the door to something that is terrifying, In fact, if you crack open the door to this thought, it opens the door to to something that you're smart enough to know. If I open that door, I'm not sure I'll ever close it again because you're smart enough to know there is a big difference and there is an important difference between I don't believe it and I don't want to believe it. See, I don't believe it is, you know, I used to believe it and then something happened and I woke up one day and I realized I just don't believe it. I don't believe it is you know something I, I used to believe it and I went to school and I learned some things that I couldn't reconcile with faith and I realized as a sophomore or junior in college or I realized when I got out of my family little bubble of religion I got outside of it and I, I just realized it's not that I don't want to believe it I just, I just don't believe it I mean that's one thing I don't wanna believe it is something entirely different. I don't want to believe it has to do with will. I don't want to believe it has to do with, I don't want to believe it because. I don't want to believe it because. I don't believe it because, versus I don't want to believe it because. Two very different things. So here's a question as we explore this very uncomfortable topic. Did you lose faith over something that happened to you or that you read? Did you lose faith or did you step back because the information just wasn't there, it was just too, it was too elementary, you kept getting Sunday school answers, you kept getting you know, faith-based answers to your fact-based questions. Is that why you stepped away? Or, I'm prying a little bit, meddling a little bit, or did you decide to stop believing because faith got to be inconvenient? Did you decide to stop believing Because faith became inconvenient. And then after you decided to stop believing, you realize stop believing something isn't an argument. So I need to go develop some support for my unbelief. In other words, did your decision to stop believing precede the data you've collected to support your unbelief? Believe because if the issue is, I just don't believe, you know, I used to believe, I don't believe, or, you know, I'm sort of ambivalent, I've never believed, but hey, you know, then there's information. I mean, you can get questions answered. There's all kinds of things to explore. There are all kinds of books that are contrary to perhaps what you've always believed. That's one thing. If you, you know, if you want God to exist, seek answers, you'll find answers. But here's the tough one, and here's where I want you to be honest with yourself and don't go anywhere. If your departure from faith was around will and want, if your departure from faith was around, I just don't want it to be true, I don't want to have to do something I don't wanna do, if your departure from faith was around will and want, information will never suffice. This is why people who argue with you, their arguments just bounce off. Blaise Pascal, 17th century mathematician, physicist, philosopher, I think he died at like 39. You know, He was a child prodigy, his father homeschooled him. He's made some extraordinary statements. Here's one, look at this, he says this. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Are we not all guilty of this? Of course we are, And, and here's why. Because very few of us, and maybe none of us, I don't know, you may be the exception, very few of us are on a truth quest. We don't wake up every day saying, I just, I just want to know the truth. I'm willing to abandon all my presuppositions. I'm willing to abandon my entire worldview if only I could know the truth. If you wake up like that every day, I'd like to meet you, but I don't know how much time I wanna spend with you, okay? That's just, that's just a very unusual thing. We're not on a truth quest. We are on a happiness quest. I wanna be happy. Give me a worldview, give me a set of values, give me a way of thinking that makes me happy. And if that worldview and that set of values doesn't make me happy anymore, I'm all about changing my worldview and my set of values because I'm not not on a truth quest. I'm gonna be nice to know what the truth is and believe the truth. But at the end of the day, I just wanna be happy. St. Augustine said this. He says, we love the truth. When it enlightens us, (laughs) we hate the truth. When it convicts us, and all of you know this, we all know this because you, all you have to do is think back to arguing with your parents when you were a kid, right? When you argued with your parents, were you trying to get to the truth or were you trying to have your way? Were you trying to get to the bottom line, mom and dad? Let's find truth. Oh, dad, you're right, I apologize. I, I just, that, you enlightened me. No, we didn't argue with our parents that way. We argued to get our way, not get to the truth. And as a kid, when you won the argument... Sometimes you walked away knowing, didn't you? You just knew. If you've ever had an argument with your husband or your wife and halfway through the argument, I mean, what is this? I mean, again, how did natural selection get us here? Maybe there's an explanation. What is this thing in this? I'm in the middle of arguing with someone, maybe someone I love, and halfway through the argument I realize, uh-oh, they're right. And what do I do? I just keep on arguing. Because I'm not trying to get to the truth, I wanna to win, to win the argument. It's not about right and wrong, it's about win. And then I win the argument because I'm smarter than somebody or I have a one-liner or they have to leave earlier. We get disconnected and I had the last word, gotcha. you know. <laughs> but when the conversation's over, when the argument's over, we know, we know. We won the argument, we had more facts, we had more leverage, we were better with words but we know, now, here's what I want you, this is is tough, I know, look, when we won't acknowledge what we suspect to be true, and we've all been here, when we're not willing to acknowledge what we suspect to be true, when we won't look for fear of what we might see, when we won't acknowledge what we suspect might be true, when we won't look for fear of what we might see, do you know what that means? It means there's something else in the mix it means there's something else going on. It means that all the arguments and all the reasons we put out there, while they may be true and while they may give us leverage, it means there's more to this conversation. There's more to this energy than we've been willing to acknowledge. And here, this is the question today. What is that? I mean, if you're one of those people that honestly, you just don't want to believe, what is that? And maybe you've never been willing to admit until maybe today, you know what the problem is, Andy, you're right. I mean, I got all these facts and figures and arguments and I shut my parents down years ago and I pulled out of church years ago. And if anybody asks me, I've got all the you know, three or four zingers and they just kind of melt away. But to be honest, I'd never thought about this. I just don't want to believe what is that? What is it that causes you to not be willing or any of us? I mean, this isn't just for people who've stepped away from the church. This is just a peep. This is a human being. This is a human thing. What is it in us that won't acknowledge what we suspect to be true or cause us not to look when we are afraid of what we might see? I think all of us, but today I'm talking to those of you who stepped away from faith. All of us need to know the answer to that question. So, At the risk of ruining the series right here at the end, and at the risk of offending you, which I certainly don't want to do, could it be, just could it be, could it be the reason, the real reason, that you stepped away from faith? Isn't perhaps the reasons that you give? Isn't perhaps you're presenting facts and arguments? Could it be one of these three things? Just could it be? Could it be, that if there's God, you're guilty. Could it be the things in your past, in some cases they are so big and they're so bold and they're so embarrassing. And, I, and even though you don't like to use this word and even though you have almost escaped this emotion and escaped this feeling that when you bring those things front and center, you are actually, it's an old school word, you actually feel ashamed. You're actually Embarrassed, and you try to keep those things locked away, and you've labeled them. You've used the cultural label for all those things. You say, "Well, when I was younger, in the past, I made some mistakes." But here's what you know: I'm just asking you to to, to um, you know crack the door open. It's scary. It's terrifying. I completely get that. Is it possible that you know if I crack the door on the fact that it's not just mistakes; it's bigger than that. That it moves me and it transitions me from mistakes to the fact that maybe I have. Send. That maybe this is just bigger than I made some mistakes because here's the deal, come on. Your biggest mistakes, you are not alone. Your biggest mistakes, you hurt other people. Your biggest mistakes, you owe somebody some somethings. You owe some things that you can't ever pay back. You cannot give her back those first few years. You cannot give your kids back what it was you took from them because you were doing whatever it was you were doing. There are some things that you cannot reconcile, you cannot make right. And of course, I understand this is culture. We just, you know, if we, just, we made some mistakes. But you know as well as I do, whatever it is, the residual, the aftermath, the shrapnel, the wake of those decisions, it follows you around. It's like it just hovers there constantly. And if I crack the door open on the fact that maybe there's God, oh my gosh, so what, what I have almost convinced myself of, well, nobody's perfect and everybody's human, I've just made some mistakes, suddenly that just gets bigger. And I'm gonna feel something that honestly, Andy, if I were to be honest, I don't wanna feel that. And, I, and here's why I know that. I've talked, I mean, I'm a pastor, I've been doing this a long time. I've talked to so many people who, I, when they finally pulled the lid off of all that stuff it scared them to death. They finally admitted, you know what? The reason I refused to look, the reason I refused to believe is I knew that once I believed what I had reduced to a few mistakes in my past, it would come back and it would be so big and so bold, it terrifies me. But honestly, I can't seem to shake it. And once they take the lid off and face it and acknowledge it for what it is, they make progress. Maybe that's your story. The other one is this, if God, I'm accountable. And come on, starting with me, we don't want to be accountable. I don't want to be accountable. We all want to play God. It's the story of the Garden of Eden. And you may believe the Garden of Eden's history. You may believe the Garden of Eden is myth. I'm telling you what, if it's myth, it is the greatest myth in history, okay? Because the story of the Garden of Eden, whatever you consider it to be, explains so much. It is the story. It is the beginning. It is the initial phase that either somebody fabricated or actually happened of mankind deciding, God, we do not need you. Who needs God? Not me and not her, not me and not him. And in the garden of Eden and in all of our lives, forget the garden of Eden, forget the book of Genesis, in all of our life, it plays out with the illusion of autonomy that somehow I will be my own person. I can do what I want to do. I can make my own choices, which always, 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 always leads to regret because unaccountable people make regretful decisions. Unaccountable, I'll do it my way. Nobody needs to tell me what to do. I can handle it. I can manage the outcome. I can manage the consequences. Unaccountable people always make regretful decisions. Then you get two autonomous people and you put them in a marriage. Two autonomous people eventually have unresolvable conflict. But the problem is, and I get this, if you you begin to turn in the direction of, if you begin to step back toward, if you admit God, then you've got to submit to God. Because you know if there is a God who's gonna hold you accountable, suddenly you are accountable. And I don't wanna submit, you don't wanna submit, nobody wants to submit. Here's the question, where did that come from? Why is it, come on, come on. Why do we resist the things that are good for us? My Labrador retriever never did that, ever. She just, that was just amazing, she was so obedient. What is it in you, come on, what is it in me that we resist the things that are good for us? But I understand this. To admit God means you got to submit to God. So we live, come on, isn't this true? We live loud, busy lives until life gets our attention. And third thing, maybe this is you, maybe not, maybe this is your thing. If God, I'm. If God, then I've been wrong. Now, come on, come on, come on, just play along with me. You don't have to do anything. There's not gonna be an altar call, no bid for your soul, okay, just play along, look. (laughs) What is pride? What is that in you and in me? You cannot deny it. I mean, I've never even met you. I know this about you because you can assume it about me. What is it in us that won't admit what we know is true. What is in us? Come on guys, we are the worst. What is it in us? We know in our minds we're wrong. We know in our hearts we're wrong. We got, you know, plenty of background and history to know we're wrong, but when it comes right down to looking somebody in the eye and saying, "I was wrong." What makes that so difficult? You need to have an answer to that question because that's something you deal with all the time. And the problem with acknowledging God is, especially if you've been away for a while, it's like I was wrong. But humility, come on, everybody knows this. Humility is always the way forward. Humility, you know this, I don't know why we resist it. Humility always makes you bigger. Humility always makes you wiser. Humility always makes you smarter because humility makes you open to new information. I've been wrong is the most direct route to discovering what is right but we resist that. So maybe this is, maybe I've touched on, maybe I've danced around, maybe this is like, when this is gonna be over, maybe this is, are you kidding? You know, you're not gonna, I know what you're doing there, Andy, I I know what you're up to, I know what you're doing. I understand that. But could it be, if God, I'm guilty, I'm accountable, I'm wrong, and Andy, I don't wanna be guilty, accountable, or wrong, so I'm just gonna stick with my arguments and keep God at bay. Now, look up here, I'm gonna wrap this up. These aren't arguments for or against anything. These are just responses. The resistance that you put out, the resistance and the reluctance to acknowledge God, it's not an argument. It's just a response. It explains why you've developed your arsenal of arguments because you are wise enough to know simply saying, well, I don't wanna feel guilty. I don't wanna be accountable and I don't wanna be wrong. That's not an argument for anything. So consequently, we have to scramble around and come up with some arguments because this is simply a response. But for some of you, if you're honest, and this is the tough one, but be honest. Don't you have to be honest with me, just yourself. Isn't it true that your arguments against God came after your decision not to want God? Isn't it true your intellectual arguments against the existence of God or the Bible or the, you know, whatever your thing is, isn't it true that was not first, that came second? After an initial season or period or event where you decided, I don't want God, but not wanting God is not an argument. It is a response. I need some reasons to support my decision. It explains why you have developed your arsenal of arguments because you did not want God to be. Now, still with me? This brings us to the good news. In fact, it's not just good news, it's like ridiculously good news. Okay, don't miss this. If you've been doing something at home, you know, shopping, whatever, just just give me 30 seconds, okay? Look up here. When we acknowledge, this is huge, when we acknowledge that the issue is our resistance, not God's existence, when we are willing to acknowledge the real issue is my resistance, not God's existence. When we're willing to be honest with ourselves and say, okay, it terrifies me, I'm not necessarily gonna do anything with it, but you know what, okay, Andy, I'm, you know, nobody's gonna know but me, but it's true. The real issue for me is not God's existence. The real issue for me is my personal resistance. When you get there, if you will just take that baby step, you have stepped into the middle of an epic narrative. The epic narrative of God pursuing a relationship with a rebel race that broke relationship with God. And I'll tell you why this is great news. Because once you are willing to admit this isn't about God's existence, this isn't actually about science, this is about my personal resistance. Once you are willing to do that, you step into the stream of humanity that has struggled with submission to God since the very beginning of time. You are exactly where you need to be because if Jesus was correct, and there's lots of evidence to say that Jesus was correct, and specifically, if Jesus was correct about God, if God, there's forgiveness that your rebellion, your sin, your mistakes become, you know this, come on, you grew up in church, most of you, your your sin, your mistakes, whatever you call them, they become the platform for God to demonstrate his love for you. In fact, the apostle Paul said it perfectly, and there's a word in this phrase that, that, that we miss sometimes, but it's like the big word. Paul said this, he says, for God demonstrates, Demonstrates, demonstrates. didn't just say it, for God demonstrates his own love for us in, in this, while we were still mistakers, mm. while we were still nobody's perfecting, while we were, well, everybody, while we were still, I did it on purpose, okay, I, I admit it, I did it on purpose. I knew it would hurt her, I did it on purpose. I knew this wasn't the right thing to do, I knew I would have regret, I did it on purpose. Come on. You know that about you. I know that about me. Let's be honest. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The new atheists, the new atheists, they make a big deal. What is it if God's, if there's a God, why didn't God just forgive everybody? Why all the blood? Why all the gore? Why didn't somebody have to die? Why didn't God just say you're all forgiven? Here's the answer to that question because God wanted to enter into a relationship with mankind. You cannot have a relationship with someone you do not sacrifice for. If you do not sacrifice for me, I don't know that you love me. This is so powerful, this is the gospel, this is right at the epicenter of everything we believe as Christians. God demonstrated His love for you. He touched down to enter a relationship with mankind and every relationship demands sacrifice. Every offense, every offense requires forgiveness. Every offense requires coming back together and restitution and through Christ. This is why it is the grand narrative. It is the perfect story. It's why all the evidence points to the fact that this is actually the stream in which we live and in which we swim. That through Christ, God demonstrated both his forgiveness and his restitution. Whew. Do you really want to live the rest of your life outside of that? Especially if there's something stirring in your heart that says, mm, I think that might be true. If there's God, there's relationship. To resist, come on. To resist, resist accountability to God, which we all resist. To resist accountability to God is to resist relationship with God. Parents know this. When their kids rebel, what's broken? The relationship's broken. If there's God, there's truth. There's a basis for moral law. Like we talked about last week, there's truth. There's a basis for judgment, for, excuse me, for justice. Look, 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 this is so huge. There is a, if there is God, there is an explanation for the oughts. The, there's an explanation for the oughts that you embrace. There's an explanation for the oughts that, you don't always, that don't always govern your actions. There is an explanation for the oughts that don't always govern your, your actions, but always govern your reactions. You ought not have treated me that way. Now I may treat you, but hey, don't you treat me. What is that? What is the big grand ought of how you know people, other people ought to treat you and you know how you ought to treat them but you don't even do what you ought to do but you are quick to be angry when they don't do what they ought to do. What is that? If God, there's truth, there's morality, there's a basis for justice, there is a basis for the law of nature, the law in your heart that you respond to every single day. If God, there's forgiveness, there's a relationship, and there's truth. So if the question was, who wants God? At some point, none of us. But if the question is, who needs God? As it turns out, all of us. Now you may not know this, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, in fact, the New Testament gives us the names of some of his brothers. He had a famous brother named James and all in the New Testament, it's so interesting because we're told that people thought that Jesus' family, his brothers and sisters, thought that Jesus was crazy. This was documented, who documented that? It's like, can we just take that out? Nope, That's what happened, we're putting it in there. They thought he was crazy, his family thought he was crazy. After the resurrection, they changed their mind. Because that's what you do after a resurrection, you go, Oh, I was wrong, okay, because I saw you die. We left flowers outside the big round stone, and here we are having a conversation. So James, J- Jesus' brother, changes his mind, and he admits, he acknowledged he was wrong. This is powerful, and he did this is amazing. And James, the brother of Jesus, submitted, there's our awful word, submitted to his brother as his Lord. And he received forgiveness for his vocal and public non-following of Jesus. He, he, you know, he, got, he asked for forgiveness for you know, rejecting Jesus when Jesus was doing all of his ministry. In the year 62, the year 62, um, the, the high priest Ananus did an illegal thing. I know you're not interested in this, but he called together the Sanhedrin illegally, and he tried James, the brother of Jesus, for blasphemy. And James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death because of his faith in his brother. Before he died, He wrote a letter and that valuable, valuable, powerful letter was very important to the local church in the first century. So they made copies and they made copies and they made copies. And that letter is in our New Testament. It's called because they weren't very creative in titling things, James. (laughs) In his letter, he says something that I think lands the plane for us in our entire conversation. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, who was stoned to death because of his faith in his brother, here's what he says. He says, come near to God and God, he, God, will come near to you. Now, realizing, we don't know what's going through James' mind, but realizing and maybe remembering how difficult it is to acknowledge your wrong, remembering and realizing, oh, I remember the day when it's like, oh my gosh, I had all those years to support my brother and I just turned my back on him and people would tell me about miracles and like, that didn't really happen. I had all my arguments. And he realizes that this is not an easy thing, draw near to God when you have drawn away from God. So the next thing he says is, and you need to address the things that had held you back. And he says this, this is his language that we don't relate to necessarily. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands you sinners. You know what that means? This is figurative language for admit it, admit it, admit it, acknowledge it. It wasn't just a mistake. You did it on purpose and you knew there would be consequence. Wash your hands, you sinners. You knew, you knew, you knew. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. And with this phrase, again, that's so offensive to us, essentially what he's saying is this, is quit playing games. Come on. Acknowledge what you know is true. Look over there even though you're afraid. Acknowledge what you know in your heart is true and then look at the thing that you're afraid to look at because of what it might demand of you. Be honest with yourself. And don't hide behind facts. Facts are facts. But there's no reason to hide from God behind facts about his world. And then the toughest one of all, and humble yourselves before the Lord. This is how you draw near. This is how you draw near to anyone. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then he tells us how regardless of what you've done and how long you've been away, how your heavenly father will respond. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up.